0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Good evening, and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. I want to um say hello. To everyone, say hello to Chuck Wally, my co-host tonight, and he's back. Dr. Orville Easterly joined us before in a previous show, and we could just we couldn't get enough of him. And tonight he's coming on, and we are going to discuss a topic that affects everyone, not just special needs parents, but everyone, and that is marriages. Exes, divorce, dating, and really being able to build a strong, healthy relationship because, you know, I think sometimes we just make it so much harder than it has to be. So welcome back, Dr. Easterly. How are you?
0: Well, thank you, Marianne. And hi, Chuck. I'm very happy to be here.
1: Um, Dr. Eastlee, you are the founder of the um, Director of Life Source Counseling Center, and you've been um, you know, counseling um, couples and families for a very long time. Um, you know, what, what do you see as the biggest obstacle? You know, what is it that most of us are getting wrong?
0: Well, Marianne, one of the things that happens in marriage is that you have uh, a man with one idea of what marriage is supposed to be and a woman with a very different idea as to what it's supposed to be, and both of them have expectations that uh, they think are very realistic. Uh, So when the marriage starts out and the erotic hormones are high, everything seems to work pretty well. But in in about 18 months to three years, those erotic hormones begin to settle down, and then we begin to really meet each other and understand each other for what we are. And there's usually... uh, a feeling of, of dissatisfaction and and disappointment in many ways, and so that that's when the two begin to uh, war about who's right about what marriage ought to be, and it usually takes place uh, concerning things that are indirectly what the problem really is. It's easier for us to talk about fringe areas uh, than it is to talk about what's really bothering us, and so it's that difference that lays the groundwork and the the, the breakdown takes place uh, along some line that that affects that particular couple the most, and it's is different for each couple.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, th- this also applies to long-term relationships as well. I mean, not just marriages. I mean, you know, it's true. Once that passion um, starts to wear off, which it will, um, you know, it's a very different relationship. Um, you know, Chuck, you could probably, I don't know whether you'll agree with this or not, but, you know, I think that oftentimes, you know, men, Like to have a problem, think it logically, and find a solution. That is correct. And and women, um, you know, we can sometimes beat things to death with emotion. And, um, you know, I think that sometimes we look for different types of closure. I think men are just looking for that quick answer. This is, but the problem is A, so the answer is B. And I think women need to resolve things differently. So, how could we get past that? I mean, Chuck, do you see this too?
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: Absolutely. One of the problems that arises there, Marianne and, and Chuck, um, is that women have evolved significantly above men in their ability to communicate. And One of the keys to their ability to reason and to communicate is that they have this, this ability to think out loud, and they usually need one or two other people to think out loud to. So... Their thought process involves all of their senses as well as viewing the reaction and hearing the response from the other person. Whereas men tend to process everything in their, in their mind, in their head, and speak a, a conclusion. Well, that, that conclusion does not satisfy the woman because she is used to going on the journey that arrives there. And so here's two very different approaches to solving even the, the smallest of problems. Now, when, when the woman is not satisfied, she wants to question, and that comes across as badgering to the male. It isn't what she's intending. But that's how he interprets it. So then he goes on to the defense, and then he begins to do his roaring, uh, which brings in the intimidation and the estrangement and the distancing. So communication is very difficult between a man and a woman. For that, those two basic reasons that have more to do with our evolution than anything else.
2: Right. Hey, Dr. Easter, I think you just uh, you just uh, <clears throat> kind of explained my current relationship. Uh, it's, it's very everything is just very uh, very right there, especially when a, when a man has a bit of ADHD and he's a a visual thinker. And you're exactly right. I say something, I come to a conclusion. She has no idea why I got there.
0: Yes, and with and if you don't if you are, are unwilling or too impatient to take her on the journey that enables you to arrive there, she's not going to be able to understand you. Uh now we we males don't understand that because we talk to each other uh in the way that males talk, and that is we state a conclusion and then we debate that conclusion. The woman wants to know how you got there. And that takes that takes using words uh in ways that we do not normally use them
2: so um in such a relationship um how do you suggest um a a man like me get started in terms of uh when we're sitting down or 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 basically when we're we're catching up and we have something to discuss and um you know it's in the it's in the heat of the moment and i'm there i want to say something uh, but I don't exactly, you know, always remember to back up and bring her along. So there must be a trick somewhere, or or something that we should be doing the entire time um, instead of instead of getting to this uh, so-called flashpoint.
0: When I was in graduate school, I, I listened
2: to a lot of lectures,
0: and I don't remember much about any of them. But there was one lecture by a visiting professor who made who made one statement that I've never forgotten. And this this lecturer was uh, teaching us about communication issues with people who are different. And she said that unless we are willing to listen, 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 and listen, until we hear the other person's heart cry, we will never begin to understand them. If we don't understand them, then we don't have any basis for further discussion. And this is a problem between men and women is that, that men do not know how to listen like that, whereas women can listen in depth to each other uh, and and even be able to debate some of the issues without taking them personally. Whereas with a male, if, if you don't take him on his statement, then he begins to become defensive and feels like he's being attacked. So then all of his defenses come up, and he's not going to hear the woman's heart cry at all. And so, again, that's those are some of the barriers that we have to learn to get over if the male and the female are going to learn how to really hear each other's heart cry. The male has an awful hard time even defining for himself what his heart cry is, uh, whereas a woman can if she's safe in telling you.
1: Right. You know, and I think it's, it's, it's very similar to the way we need to speak with our children. Because I often talk about um, You know, how we have to speak um in the language of positives with these kids, not to make them defensive. And, you know, you, I think that sometimes we have to even try to apply that in the relationships because I think a lot of times, you know, I know I come off as nagging when I'm just trying to get my, my point across. Um, so, you know, but it's really it's hard, you know, because you're dealing w- is, with emotions. And, um, you know, I think that when you have you know, children, especially children with special needs, there's just so much pressure and so much responsibility that, um, you know, they say that you always have patience for the one you love most, you know, the least yeah. patient. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, there, there's again, we have something going against us genetically, both with, with any two people, uh, husband and wife, and it's very, very evident with our children it is in our written into our our old brain the the method to survive and that includes either running for our life fighting for our life pleading for our life or rolling over and playing dead in other words when we feel intimidated all of us tend to go on the defense now this is something we can see very quickly in our children When we approach them with a raised voice or an angry face or a threat of some kind, their little brain takes them immediately into that defensive posture where they see themselves in danger. And so their whole thought process is to escape. When we are in a defensive mode, no matter what our age is, we do not use the frontal lobe very well because we're trying to find a way to win the fight and to escape. So if you want your children not to be able to understand what you're saying, then yell at them, threaten them, uh, come on at them with an angry face, and they will go on into the defense, and they will try to placate you, but they won't learn from you. So if we're going to communicate with them, we have to recognize that one of their life cycle tasks is to learn how to manage us. That's an important life cycle task for them to learn how to manage these big people in their life. So that's what they're trying to do. They're not just being mean kids or being disobedient kids. They're trying to find a way to have some control in their life. If we recognize that and come at them without being offensive or threatening, but again, engage them so that they can tell us what their heart cry is, then we can gain the understanding which enables us then to work together on a solution. Now that's a long way to solve a, a current problem. Right. But it's also right. a horrible distance when we alienate the child because that can last a lifetime.
1: Right. Um, you know, and as far as couples, you know, that's I think often what leads to the disconnect. You know, when when this when these issues become you know, stay unresolved for so long, there, there does become a disconnect. You know, the the romance um, you know the sex life; everything starts to suffer, and that's when you really start to see things deteriorating. And
0: that's very, very true, Marianne. And, and back to this thing of not hearing the heart cry. Uh, one of the things that is, again, genetically written into the male is to immediately become defensive when he is challenged. Um, when he does that, again, his thinking, uh, his, his his reasoning stops so much and he goes into the mode where he's trying to conquer and when that happens with the woman in his life then she goes into fear and defensiveness and so it's this is an area that if the male can get past the sense that when his wife asks him a question and he tries to answer it and she follows up with almost the same question with a little variation on it that he begins to feel badgered, he can get past that and recognize that she is really trying to understand, and he then is able to listen to her and then to respond without defense, then communication can begin to take place. Otherwise, alienation starts, and when there's conflict, a war begins, and somebody has to lose, and in fact nobody wins in those particular wars. Yes,
1: and, you know, I think, um, you know, that's what really escalates to, so, you know, so much divorce. Um, you know, but but a lot of people just stay in really bad relationships, and some stay in abusive relationships. You know, why do they continue? You know, what makes a man or a woman stay in an abusive relationship?
0: There are many things, and, and this has been studied very effectively from a lot of angles, but let me just give you one that that I see more often than than others. A male will stay in a in a relationship where he's abusive, or where the, the woman is abusive, or both are abusive, in order to protect his stuff. He doesn't want to divide what they have worked so hard to gain at that point, and so it begins. It becomes a stalemate. Whereas a woman, very often, will stay in a an abusive relationship, believing something that the male is very effective in saying and that is to blame her. If she were just this or if she were just that or if she just wasn't something else, then this thing would work. And unfortunately, many women begin to, to believe that to some level, and so they are trying to, to not be responsible for the relationship breaking up, and also they want to preserve their nest where their children are. And so there's there's this struggle to to survive in a very unhealthy situation That goes on and on until, unfortunately, in many cases, there is irreversible damage done to everybody concerned, including the children. Because, unfortunately, those children are going to grow up with the model in their mind of what a relationship is like based on what they've seen all of their life. And certain things begin to repeat uh, to the same devastation.
1: You know, I love the saying, I, I forget who, who it was who said it on the show, and they said, live the life you want your children to have.
0: Excellent.
1: Um, you know, and I think that's so true. Um, you know, if you want your children to, um, you know, be in a loving relationship, you know, they have to see that. Um, but, you know, oftentimes it does escalate to divorce, and there are the war of the exes. I mean, it's it's horrible, you know, and, and Chuck, Chuck, I was a little surprised. I was um, trying to look at some stats for divorce, and, um, you know, the Average family, I think, um, couple is fifty percent. And those with special mm-hmm. needs I think went up to sixty percent. Which I thought yes. were really pretty high. I thought they had been coming down, you know. Um but but you know, Doctor Easterly, what you gave me a couple of reasons, um, when we spoke about um you know the, the problems that create these wars and these kids that get stuck in the middle of it. And you said one of them was the unwillingness to accept what they cannot change and a yeah. vengeance at any cost. So can you explain those to us?
0: Yes, one. In fact, this is true in in most relationship struggles, but when it comes to a, a marriage coming apart, um, one of the problems is that we have a we human beings have a tendency. To be unwilling to accept things that we cannot change and if we do not accept the things that we cannot change or perhaps even that should not be changed then we be, we become a prisoner to that our life begins to revolve around that and more bitterness and more anger develops whereas the solution is that if i learn to accept the things i cannot change or the things that should not be changed then I can change the way I think about it. I have to change the way that I think about the loss and in the marriage, uh, the disappointment in the marriage, whatever it is that I have a hard time accepting, if I learn to change how I think about it, then I can accept what cannot be changed or what shouldn't be changed and then begin to design a way to move on from there. And that process is is a continuation of something that we begin at birth and that is a a process called separation-individuation. In order for the individual to develop, they have to learn from the primary people in their life. And so we adopt much of what we see and hear and understand. But then there comes a time when I have to pull myself away from all that I've learned far enough to know where those influences end, and I as an individual begin... And then I begin to do the individuation where I begin to discover who I am and develop who I am that is somewhat different from all that I have known growing up. When I'm able to do that separation individuation, then I'm able to accept the things about my life growing up and perhaps the disadvantages or maybe some of the hurts and the problems there. And understand more about it, change my thinking about it and let go of it so that I can go on and be free. Now that's this is done over and over again when it comes to uh the, the breaking up of a marriage where I have to accept what I can't change by changing how I think about it and begin to design who I am from there. This is this is a process of of de- determining Now that I am divorced or getting a divorce, who am I now? And what do I want to be? Design that and begin to build it.
1: Right. You know, and it's true because, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is that people become obsessed with creating misery for the other person. And I think it's so true that I see this with a lot of people. I see this with some of my friends, that they just are so, like you said, obsessed with making the other person miserable or obsessed with what that person is doing with their life, that they don't move ahead with theirs.
0: One of the things that causes that, Marianne, is is that we don't want to accept our responsibility when a relationship comes apart. What we want to do is focus on what the other person did that was wrong. And if we can do that, then somehow we feel better about our loss. But, Breaking up a relationship is never just one side. And so if I'm not going to accept and resolve my issues that that, that contributed to the breakup, then I need to justify my behavior by augmenting and expanding on and becoming hateful due to what I see as the wrongs of the other person and begin to recruit people to be on my side in that situation, which only increases the bitterness and the blindness that results from that kind of activity.
1: So then how do people, because really it's a, it's a matter of power and, and dominating the situation. So how do people, you know, how would you suggest a, a parent do that, um, you know, when they have so much anger?
0: Well, here's where we have to, have and usually it it takes some really good therapy here for us to be able to step back from the disappointments of the loss and the divorce and and the struggle and and, and the battle for for the uh the, the the rights of raising the children and the percentage of what we're going to get and be able to look at the the burden of anger that we are carrying and ask the question do I want to spend? the rest of my life carrying this this angry bitterness inside. If I do not, then I have to learn how to forgive. Now, forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not even a desire. Uh, Forgiveness is a decision that I make not to charge the person who wronged me with that that wrong from here forward. And this is not for the benefit of of the person who I feel wronged me. This is for my benefit, if I choose to forgive, then I choose to set myself free from the hurt the wound that I feel that that person has done by forgiving them and living with them just as if or living in relationship to them, just as if they had never done the wrong. I'll never but forget it, it,
2: but
1: what if they're if what if they're um doing things that are harmful to the children? I mean, I think that. That that has to be, you know, an unbearable situation. Um, you know, if, if, if one parent is using a child as a pawn against the other um, for, because they're obsessed with, you know, their being powerful and making the other person miserable or, you know, maybe they're ill, I don't know, um, you know, how how could really a parent forgive that and be able to put that behind them?
0: Unfortunately... When it comes to the custody battles in, in a divorce, that un, too many times one or both of the children try to use—I mean, both of the parents try to use the children as, as as pawns against the other parent. This is devastating to the children, and unfortunately, also for the parent because one thing I've learned over the years is that the parent who uses the children as a pawn to hurt uh, the other parent and and run that parent down to the children. Early on, they may actually convince the child that the other parent is bad. Consequently, that those children or that child loses those those months or those years with that other parent. But in time, they come to recognize what happened. And when they do, then they hold the parent responsible who robbed them of those years with the other parent. A child doesn't... Doesn't want to to draw a judgment as to who's right and who's wrong. They don't want to take a side. And when they are being, when they feel like they have to choose a side, there is damage done to them that may take years for it to be identified and to come out. But in time, it will. Now, what you, you raised the question: What about when you feel like the other that, that the parent is damaging the other children? We need to take the steps that are available to us in law in order to determine whether or not the children are in an unsafe situation and to determine whether or not what we think is wrong is simply different from what we want for the child. And if it's, if it's simply different from what we want for the child, we have to learn to accept that. Otherwise, the children are going to pay the bill on it, and we're, we're going to be caught in something that we are unwilling to accept. If there is a bad situation, if there is an unfit parent, which is very hard to determine here in California, but if there is an unfit parent, that has to be a judgment of the court, and the court has to take action on that. The, uh, the parent who thinks that the uh, child is being damaged needs to learn what their legal processes are and do their very, very best to run those processes without becoming unreasonable in that process. Our children, though they are so sensitive and and we can damage them too easily, they're also very resilient, and they understand a whole lot more about what's going on than we give them credit. And that and there's no easy answer in a situation where we think that one parent is is a bad parent, uh, but if we cannot resolve it legally, then we have to accept what we can't change.
2: Yeah, I I agree. That is such a It's such a fine line to walk and to see and to really um, understand when you have to do something and when you have to sit back and and, uh, kind of accept what it is. And uh, I think that's something that so many people struggle with because they don't really want to be overbearing, but they see something happening um, and they want to do something, but they're not sure, you know, what they should do, and I think that's probably when they should come and see a person
0: like you. Yes, they need to get they need to get the best help that they possibly can. But one of the things, Chuck, that I've I've learned over the years, and I've been doing this for almost forty years now, so I've had a little bit of of a rear view that I can look down. And one of the things that I have observed is that if if I can get both parents to be accepting of the difference in the other, that takes the pressure off of the children. And children are absolutely uh, excellent, very capable in managing their parent. So the parent who is not a good parent, uh, the children will adjust that relationship. I'm I'm watching that go on right now in a family of five kids with two parents who neither one of them are are responsible enough to be raising children. But they they have this, this responsibility. They're divorced and they're battling over over the custody and using that to whip each other. In working with those children, what I'm observing is when when the pressure can be taken off, those children work out a relationship with each parent that becomes more satisfying as the time goes on and the child is able to learn to negotiate with that parent and adjust the relationship. Now, that's, that's where long-term solution is able to be found is supporting the child in learning to deal with their situation and in that situation, learn what not to do as well as to define what they
2: want to do.
1: You know, when I was dealing Mm -hmm.
2: with... Uh, Dr. Eastlake, in your experience, um, do you really see, do you find that parents are putting children first or uh, I know everybody wants to and they say they're supposed to, uh, do you see that truly happening, or is it something else? I see in, in, uh, by,
0: by the vast majority, Chuck. Parents are good. They they lack knowledge, they lack experience, and they are very very different. But they really they really do try to do what is right. The problem comes in when one parent believes sincerely that the other parent. Is wrong about how they're approaching things. Now, the way that a woman, a mother, will approach a child who is being sassy or being rude, is different from the way that the father will do it, if he if, he, if the mother doesn't interfere. Often, the, the father will appear to be either too overbearing, or he'll appear to be too uh, laissez-faire. He, taking it too easy. Whereas a mother wants to not only correct the child, but teach the child. And her approach is right. It works for her. But when she wants the father to mimic or mirror her approach, she asks him to do something that he literally cannot do, uh, at least not easily, or or in a short amount of time. So they see each other as, as not being a good parent. And with that in mind, then they miss out on seeing what that parent is bringing to that child. So there are I bad I just parents. want to
1: say that we are going to stay on the air. Um, we haven't said that we're supposed to go off in a minute, but we're going to stay on it. We do um, have some callers on the line. So continue, and callers, we just stay on the, the line. We're going to get to you.
0: Okay. Well, anyway, I, I hope that answered your question, Chuck. Uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: It, you know, when I was going through this um, with um, my stepson, um, you know, basically what I was told, <clears throat> excuse me, it was very good advice, and we said, listen, you have to continue to do what's right for the child, and water will seek its own level. And I was told exactly what you just said. In time, as the child gets older, they're going to see which is the healthier home, um, yes. which is the home that has the discipline and the structure. Um, So really, you know, you you just have to sort of walk the line. But, you know, then you're dealing with other situations, and I think that is probably a little bit higher in the community that we're in, um, that there's often abandonment issues because these children can be extremely challenging. And you are often, you know, often you see in these families where there are divorces and little by little um, one parent is no longer really involved in the child's life. So how do you speak to that child and not make them, feel that it's their fault.
0: And here's where the listening comes in where where if a parent learns how to interview the child not not as a, an interrogation but merely as a as building a safe place for the child to talk about what they're feeling without the child sensing that the parent is taking a side even if if the parent appears to be taking their side in the issue Children do not want their parents to take a side against the other one. But the child needs a place to be able to talk about the ongoing struggle that they're having with the other parent. And if I, as a parent, can provide that where I can listen to the child, then when the child feels like they are heard, there is is a sense then of direction that they begin to gain and that, that's when the parent can begin to encourage the positive that they see the child doing. And and when when that takes place, the child is going to make some mistakes, but they're also going to do some things that are right. And that, that dynamic between them and the other parent will begin, as you said, to find its own level. But that's very difficult, especially when there is bitterness and anger on the part of the one parent against the other, then, when the child begins to open their heart about how they feel about the other parent, then the parent who is, is bitter tends to want to build on that and to encourage right. that, and that's right. a total loss.
1: Right. But how would you t- speak to a child whose one of the parents has just walked out of their lives?
0: This is where we, we want to be as as factual as we can. And to find out what, how is a child interpreting this? I have some situations like like this because I do deal with 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 junior high and high school kids uh, in the in these settings. What I want to find out is how are they interpreting this? How are they seeing this? How have they, uh, and how are they dealing with it? So I want to hear them first. And when if they're able to articulate to me that they do feel like they're not being loved and the other person has abandoned them as being of, of, of little or no value, then I want to deal with them on and teach them how to establish what they think that they're worth so that they're not learning to to judge their worth by whether or not they are accepted or abandoned or are, are abused by another person, but to define their own worth and their own direction And then be able to interpret what is being done to them. We are not responsible for what is done to us, but we do have the power to interpret it. And I want to teach the child how to interpret it in a healthy way. Again, this takes time. And if a parent will take this time, it will be very, there'll be a lot of pressure during certain periods, but if they do it well, it'll save them many hours and a lot of hurt to their child in the long run.
1: Right. I'm going to take a caller. But, you know, even in uh, families that don't have special needs children, when there's divorce, the children often feel um, that they're somehow to blame. And, you know, I just worry that these children that have really, you know, behavioral issues that they really don't have control over, you know, really are going to think that, you know, parent left because of their behavior so like you said and, and then and marianne they very thinking. often
0: interpret it that way i have a case yeah. right now where this nine-year-old girl who does things to try to get their parents back together and feeling like somehow if she and her brother were somehow different that the parents would be all right and that's a very difficult thing to deal
1: with Okay, I'm going to try to take on a caller. I hope that you're still here. Area code 304, are you on the line? Mary Ann. Yes.
3: This is Mary Calhoun-Brown. You asked us to call at 930.
1: Hi, Mary. How are you? Can you just hold one second? I'm going to Absolutely. be with you in like five minutes. Terrific. Sure. Um, we have uh, Mary Calhoun-Brown who's going to be coming on, um, and we're going to be talking about the um, sleep in for autism the day after the Super Bowl. I asked Mary to call in so that we could um, make sure that everybody was aware of that. Um You know, I I want to talk about, you know, you talk about marriage by design, and I think that would go for relationship by design also. So tell us what that is um, and how we can use it to build healthier relationships.
0: One of the interesting things about relationships, when you look at it through uh, what we refer to as, as, as relationship structures, every relationship is a structure like a building. Only it's built without a without a plan, and the way we build the structure of a relationship is by learning what not to do, and in the process learning what to do so in reaction, we begin to work out a relationship from the day that we meet until the day that we're married and then on on from there the When a marriage is unhealthy, then we have to identify the the parts of the marriage that are unhealthy and recognize it as like a part of a structure. How do we remove it and how do we replace it? So when a couple is building a relationship, if they come to know that what they're building is a a structure, then I teach them to, first of all, let's work out a design, just like an architect, because a relationship is something you live in. You go out from it on a daily basis to do your responsibilities, but you come back into it in the evening to share the fruit of the uh, of, of the day. And so we live in the relationship, so let's design it so we can have a relationship that we want to live in, like we would design a house if we could build it from the start. And so I teach them to literally draw some circles and say, what do they want in the relationship? And how do they want these circles to relate? And then we work from that to, to design a path to get the relationship to implement these particular aspects and they begin to build a relationship that is designed to fit the way they want to live. It makes a big difference rather than to build it out of reaction.
1: Right. I like that. So, uh, Chuck, we are connected in our relationships.
0: We are indeed.
1: <laughs> I, mean, I like that.
0: We do it with in reaction, unfortunately, rather than with forethought.
1: And you know, I think it's it is. You know, as you were saying it, what I was thinking was it is a lot like a house. You know, because you're constantly you know adding additions and renovations, and you keep building on it. And you know, it's a job. You know, it is. It takes a lot of work.
0: And it it, it, it takes really listening to what your mate is wanting. And the 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 question is, what can I do to enable my mate to get their needs met in this relationship? And if both are working to that end, then as they are literally, and because I have several couples right now who are in various stages of designing the new relationship that they want, then they can build it, but they have to design
2: how to do it. So in what point of a relationship can you uh, design your new house? Does it have to be at the very beginning? Can it be (laughs)
1: 10
2: years in? I love that. Yeah, Chuck, when,
0: when a couple comes in to see me, their marriage is in trouble. What we first of all do is to determine what is the problem, what caused the problem, and what needs to be changed so that problem isn't there. So we begin to design a restructuring, which means that we have to identify what needs to go out of the relationship, but what are we going to have come in and replace it because we don't leave a vacuum there. Otherwise, negative things will, will be drawn into it. So we're, we're, when the couple comes in we, we just, and we identify the problems, then we begin to design how they want to replace those problems, and then we design some steps to, to begin to do that. For instance, I have a couple who have been married 30 years, and from the day they got married, he's been lazy in their relationship, and they really have not had any real dates. They just kind of do stuff, <laughs> to, use, to use her words. Uh, and so she wanted to have have some romantic experiences. That's the reason why she got married and to, to do some things that are fun, but it's built around the fact that they are a couple. And so we begin to design what kind of date would she like to have and what can he do to make that date happen. What's interesting is he's getting really into it, enjoying the, the process. And as he does, then they begin to learn how to bring romance and fun as a man and woman together rather than as a husband and wife, parents of children, and people who are struggling to make a mortgage.
1: You know, it's funny because I I asked on the show today, um, on the show this week, I was like, how many people can go out to dinner um, with friends or a husband or, you know, a partner and not talk about the kids. And I was shocked that the reply was, "Well, how could you?" Yeah. You know, how could you not go out and talk about the kids and you know. And I was really taken back because you know, that's really the point of date night. You know, and every every couple should have a date night once a week. But I think that, you know, you sort of lose contact with being just an adult and a man and a woman if you just when you go out, you talk about, you know, your problems and your kids. Uh, you know, people have to get the,
4: exactly the relationship right.
1: back on tra- track. Well, Doctor mm-hmm. Easley, I appreciate you joining us. Um, always informative, and you know, it's a topic really so important, especially for the, spare- the special needs parents. Chuck, anything you wanted to add before we go?
2: Now, I'm always amazed, Marianne, when you pull guests on the show. How timely it is for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> Chuck, guess what? This one is timely.
1: All the time. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a never-ending process. It's been my pleasure, Marianne and
0: Chuck. I've enjoyed having this time with you, and I wish you the very best as you continue in your work.
1: You too. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, now I have a surprise guest coming on, uh, Mary Calhoun Brown, one of my favorite books, uh, favorite authors, there Are No Words, just unbelievable uh, book, Chuck. I don't know if you've read it, but uh, you and your son would love it. Um, Mary Calhoun Brown is on with us now. And um, Mar- Mary, how are you?
3: I'm great, Marianne. How are you doing? I'm um,
1: good. I'm sorry we ran a little bit over. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, Chuck, Mary, why don't you first tell us what Sleep In for Autism is Well, actually, I have my autistic son,
3: William, online with us, and I thought that he would probably do a better job since he's the founder and creator of Sleeping for Autism. William?
1: Fantastic. William, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
1: So tell us about this, because, you know, I heard about this last year. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And I really wanted to have have you come on, because, you know, I'd like you to explain to everybody what it is you're doing.
4: What happens is... On February sixth, next week, you donate however much you can to your local autism charity, and the day after the Super Bowl, you sleep in for autism awareness.
1: And you know, and and it's just it's so it's such a fantastic idea because I'm going to be really honest, I don't really watch sports, and I know the Super Bowl is a really big thing, but you know, so many people just take the day off. After the Super Bowl, I mean, Chuck, you're you're a sports fanatic. What do you think of this idea?
2: <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> you know, right. there's so much going on after the Super Bowl, and uh, you know, you're never asleep before you know at least one at one a.m. So I
4: love that idea.
1: So how did you come up with this, William?
4: Well, actually, talking about the number of people uh, missing work, I was doing some research online. And I found that 4.4 million people uh, come to work late on the Monday after the Super Bowl, and wow. 1.5 million people don't show up at all. So I started asking myself, "What can I do?" Because I knew that there must be something I can do to make it uh, make it easier for these people to justify sleeping in after the Super Bowl. And I thought, William, you're
2: my kind of guy. <laughs>
4: So I thought, you know, why not have sleep in for autism and not just raise money for autism, but also raise autism awareness and let people sleep in while they're doing it.
1: And do you have a website um, or someplace that that people can go so that they can really understand what it is um, you're doing? And you said um, initially that they can donate to any autism charity, which I think is fantastic.
4: Yes, that's actually one of the benefits of Sleep In for Autism. You don't have to worry about any money going through my hands. You donate directly to the charities, and you make sure that 100% of the profits actually go to Autism Research and Autism Services. If you would like to know more about Sleepin' for Autism, you can go to our website, sleepinforautism.org, or you can go to the Facebook page, Sleep In for Autism. And there you can find a link to the event, Sleep In for Autism 2012.
1: That's terrific. And, you know, I, w- I would assume that people could get their offices involved in this as well.
4: Oh, yeah. It's uh, definitely something that you should encourage your coworkers to do. It's uh, it's definitely a lot of fun, and I'm sure your coworkers would love an excuse to sleep in after, uh, after a long night of partying after the Super Bowl.
3: Right. Mary, and well, this, this is web- this is Mary. I just one of the things that William always says when he's talking to people is, you know, it's better than a walk, it's a sleep. And I just love that because <laughs> I mean how many autism awareness walks or March of Diamonds Walks or whatever have you been on and this is just an opportunity to just not do anything but still raise awareness. So that's great.
1: Hey, we can all sleep.
3: That's so that right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, you know, I think it's good. Why don't you give us the website one more time, Mary?
3: Um it's um www.sleepinforautism.org. Okay. And then the um website is or the um Facebook event is you can just um search sleepin' for autism and it'll come up.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna be posting I posted it the other day, but I'm gonna be posting it several times today for the rest of the, the week. Thank you. Um well William, this is this is a fantastic idea it's a creative way to um raise awareness and um really I, I think it's terrific.
3: He's trying he's in 35 countries this year. He was only in 9 countries last wow. year. So even people that don't watch the Super Bowl are participating, which i think is really something and he'd really like to make it sustainable. He's a senior in high school this year and he'd like to um just you know every Monday after the Super Bowl uh continue to raise awareness. So I'm very proud of him.
2: Uh, that, that is, I have to say, that is a genius idea, just brilliant.
3: Well, he's a genius and brilliant child, I have to say. <laughs>
1: well, William, you know, I'd love to see you get a little bit more publicity on this. I'd love to, um, you know, see if you could get on some of the news stations and other things like that and really um, let everyone know about this. Um, really, very, you must be very proud. Uh, Mary, what's, how, I mean, I have never made a secret that your book is one of my favorites. It is so well written and so interesting. Um, and you were making it into a movie at last we spoke.
3: Well, I was making a um, a book trailer for it. Okay. And mm-hmm. then I also had a guy approach me about turning it into a ballet, which, which just really me up. Yeah, I didn't pursue that. But, I mean, I can't imagine how you would do a ballet with, a train wreck in it, but...
1: (laughs) No, but it would make an unbelievable feature film.
3: I think it would, too. Um, It
1: really would. And
3: I would love it if someone would approach me about, um, you know, writing the screenplay and and developing it in that way. I think it would be uh, really fun to see it on the screen. The um, book trailer that we shot was just, we had a wonderful group of young people working on it and um, I'm very proud of the way it turned out so yeah, I think it has some visual elements
1: oh it's beautifully done really beautifully done well Mary jump on Twitter send some tweets don't forget to put our hashtag TCK on there and um, we are definitely going to try to spread the word because this is a fantastic thing that that William started so thank you for calling in I really appreciate it
3: thanks so much Mary Ann I'll talk to you soon
1: okay take care thank you William Thank
4: you very much.
3: Okay, Chuck.
1: Well, this was a great show.
4: Absolutely. Yeah,
1: I always. mean, you know, listen, we're all struggling in in relationships. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not easy. It is just not uh, easy.
2: Well, you know, it, it is it is work, and it's a it's a good work too. You know, so um, yeah, I, I yes, you're right. We are so. Uh, we it is always a struggle, but you know, tonight at the beginning of this show, he. He he nailed my thinking process, and uh, uh, you know, uh, it just it's just amazing. You know, just something that you know really spoke to me and said, "Hey, you know, pay some attention to this." So
1: right, you know, and it's funny because now when I try to you know get my point across with my husband, I I, I literally I, I take a step back and I say, "Okay, I know that all these words are coming out of my mouth, but I know that that is not what's going through his head." You know, Mm -hmm. so I try to, you know, because, you know, I hear myself, and I say, God, you sound like such a nag, but I I can't stop it. You know, you have to just keep going and going until you get the response you want. But, you know, it doesn't work that way, so I think women have to start to, um, you know, Approach subjects differently, and men have to start to start to think a little more emotionally instead of just logically. Yeah. Because uh, yes. you know we're just we're just so different. But I think one of the most important things is what he said that it's it's never about the shoes, um, you know, left in front of the door, you know. Right. <laughs> that is, <laughs> uh, you know, always the bigger issues behind it. So, uh, yep. you know, it's it's a lot of work, but it's worth it. So, Chuck, always a pleasure.
2: Uh, likewise, Marianne. Your shows are always great.
1: Okay, thanks. We have uh, Special Needs Talk Radio. We have big announcements coming up this week. I am thrilled, proud, honored. I can't even tell you. I'm going to be making an announcement this week. Um, We have three new shows, unbelievable hosts, and I'm very excited. We'll be announcing that probably on Wednesday. So stay in touch with us on Twitter, at The Coffee Clatch, and um, join us again next Sunday. Thank you for joining us. Good night.